You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. It's been an amazing week, as we've already heard. We've seen, displayed the public and the private lives of the current Prime Minister and the previous one. We've reported about all the things that they've supposedly done for our country. But behind the scenes we're told that they're totally different. We're presented with a facade. Kevin is really like this behind the scenes. Ah yes, now you'll see the real Julia. And it's amazing what colleagues are actually prepared to say about their leaders. We're told that hypocrisy is clearly at work. Sadly, in the Christian world, we've seen lots of very public failures in recent years of Christian leaders not practising what they actually preach, of going off with someone else's wife, of collecting resources that were given to God and using them for themselves, saying one thing but doing another. We've got to be really careful, don't we? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Maybe you've been duped by someone. Maybe you trusted someone. That you thought you could rely on them. That they'd support you. But they've betrayed you. And they've gone and off with someone else or Perhaps they've actually taken something that you created and actually put a patent on it and then made a lot of money from it. I wonder whether we ourselves here this morning are guilty of hypocrisy, of putting on a face, of pretending that we're someone that we're actually not. Here we're continuing on with our studies in the book of Romans and really what this passage that Brett read to us is talking about is about true religion, true relationship with God. God's blueprint for relationships is sort of the title, isn't it, that you've put to these studies in Romans. And God desires friendship with you and I because that's what the story of the Bible is all about. It's about God's relationship with his creation, as Brett was reminding us right at the start, that God made us in his image. I'm always encouraged and challenged by those little words that God said 
let me? He said, let us make God in our image. God, we could argue, is relationship. That there we had Father, Son and Holy Spirit before the beginning of time in perfect relationship. And so God made us, made Adam and Eve to be in relationship with him so that they could walk in the garden with him and have fellowship together. But sadly, they broke relationship with him. They went their own way and they were judged as a result. So God then chose a special people, the nation of Israel, to demonstrate to the rest of the world how God could be in relationship right relationship with us. He formed a covenant with them. He said, you are my people. I am your God. And yet Israel left him and went after other idols. But what did he do? He preserved a remnant, Judah. Yet Judah failed him too and were taken into exile. But as Isaiah 53 tells us that God provided a servant who was worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ, he came as his own son so that God could restore the relationship between us and himself. What's this telling us? It's telling us that you and I mightn't want to be in relationship with God, but God wants to be in relationship with us. He will do everything that he can to be in right relationship with you and me. He wants your fellowship. He desires to be in relationship with you. He desires to be in relationship with me. Jesus is God's son who came on a rescue mission. Garth introduced this book, didn't he, two weeks ago, telling us what? There was a key point when I had an opportunity to listen to what he talked about. You might have listened and heard some other things, but one that stuck in my mind was that this is not about me, that this book is all about God. And interestingly, doing a little bit of research, God is the most frequently used word as we go right through the book of Romans. It's all about God. And as Garth told us, that it was about the gospel that comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, it clearly tells us that Jesus is fully human and is fully God so that he could save us. So that Paul was able to say in verse 16 of chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every one of us, God wants to have fellowship with us and so he has done everything possible in sending his son to take 
our punishment. That's why it's important that Jesus was fully God. It says that, born of a woman, under the law. Why? So that he could take your place and mine. So that he could be our sacrifice. But it was essential that he was fully the son of God. Why? And that was affirmed by the resurrection so that he could demonstrate that this was something that God had actually done. He didn't have to bear his own sin. And then Lee talked with us last week, didn't he, about chapters 1 and 2. And the thing that really stuck in my mind, listening to what Lee talked about, was that we have a choice. We can't be on the fence. Remember he took us to Luke 18 and there were two men one who was right with God when he left that place and one who, as it were, was still in his sins. And there's no middle ground. We have to make a choice as to whether we'll stay under God's judgement or whether we will choose to accept his salvation offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, as we look At the second half of chapter 2, we see very clearly something more about what it means to be in right relationship with God, particularly by pointing out what it's not. Sometimes that's a good way to find out what's true, isn't it? Is to find out what's not true and then clearly the opposite is the thing that we need to believe. It's always good to have the Bible open so I hope you've got it open again at Romans chapter 2 and uh, just one of the things that I always find helpful is to see the argument in context. Where do these few verses actually fit within this book? And there's lots of fantastic outlines that give a good picture of what this book of Romans is all about. One of the ones that I have found very helpful is just this one that I've put up on the screen at the moment without going into all the detail but Romans is a very logical book. It doesn't seem that Paul is writing to fix up or correct the problem. It seems that he's wanting to put down in very clear language what the Gospel is all about. And so as you start from chapters 1 through to 16 really as we've been looking at The first three chapters are telling us that our relationship with God is broken. Everyone is guilty before God. Sin, the problem of sin, culminating in verse 10 perhaps of chapter 3, that there's none righteous, not one. And in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, the wonderful thing is is that from 3 through to 5, Paul tells us about God's rescue mission, about the salvation that is actually offered through Jesus Christ. And so what we have is is that we are made right with God through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 3. And God continues to be at work within us. He doesn't just save us. So chapters 6 through to 8 tell us that God's at work within our lives, changing us, moulding us, making us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Big word, sanctification. You can see why I like it though. I can remember five S's. 
And then the third area, there's a bit of a, a fourth one, sorry, there's a bit of a prosthesis. It's like a couple of brackets, chapters um, 9 through to 11, where God talks about his sovereignty in how he's going to deal or is dealing with Israel. Lots of debate and discussion around that one. I'm sure you'll have really interesting discussions when you get there. But clearly the big point out of that is that God is sovereign. And then finally, the rest of the book essentially is about service and we know that verse so well when we get to chapter 12 where it says, Therefore I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God. If you're in the authorised, this is your reasonable service. If you're in the NIV, it's your spiritual act of worship. But it is about the practical application and outworking of this salvation in our lives. And so we know that God is at work. And here, these few verses that we're looking at fit back in those first three chapters where the argument's strongly being made that we haven't got a leg to stand on by ourselves. No, indeed, we are guilty before God. We've got the heathen or the pagan in verse 18 of chapter 1. Their relationship with God is broken. Even though they don't acknowledge him, verse 20 says that they're without excuse. But then the moral person, start of chapter 2, it says you who judge others. So the one who's moral and we've got it all sorted out and we think that we're doing the right thing, well, we're without excuse even though we judge others because we ourselves can't come up to God's standard. And then thirdly, we have the person who is religious. Indeed, that we're looking at here in verse 17. They are guilty before God too because they can't keep the actual law that God has provided them with. So, Here this morning, if the reality be true, we probably identify mostly with the religious person. We wouldn't see ourselves as being really amoral. We wouldn't just see ourselves as being moral and having things sort of sorted out with a good set of values. We would see that we have a clear faith, that we have a clear set of guidelines that we're to live by. So we would probably be the one that Paul's talking to most out of these first uh, two chapters as the religious person. And Paul clearly says here that if the religious person is relying on being a member of a special group or relying, as Terry was telling us, on rituals, ritualistic practice, we are still guilty before God. So, what is true religion? Firstly, true religion is not relying on the law. Our relationship with God is not based on having a special book or being able to recite it or reading it every day. Paul addresses very directly the Jews of the day. 
Jews comes from the word Judah. Remember I talked about that special group that God chose and then a remnant which came from Judah and if you came from there you were called a Jew. That's where the the word comes from. And what was their role? In Exodus 19 and verse 4 they were to reveal God to the world. You yourselves, God says, have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for me. So on one hand they should have felt pretty special. And previously, and Lee mentioned it last week, they thought in one sense they were superior, that they were better. Paul knew how they felt. Remember what Paul's testimony was before he was saved? Philippians 3 and verse 4, I'm a Jew. Not only that, I'm a Benjaminite. I was circumcised on the eighth day I'm a Pharisee, I know the law through and through. I know and can maintain that I am keeping the law to the best of my ability. But what happened? He said, I all of a sudden realised that they were all the things that I thought were important, but now I count them as refuse, as dung is absolutely worth nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. So you can imagine that there's someone sitting here interjecting and saying, hang on, hang on, hang on, Paul. Yeah, that's, that's right, but I'm not like the pagan. No, 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 come on, I, you know, I go along to church. Hey, look, look, I'm not like that moral person. I mean, yeah, I've got a good set of values, but I do more than that. And Paul is answering, as it were, that imaginary interjector and saying, hey, hang on, but if you call yourself a Jew, if you think that you can rely on the law to essentially make you right with God, if you think that you know the law and can instruct others and guide guide others and are relying on that to be right with God, You've got it all wrong. Think about those footballers that we too sadly hear about too frequently over the last year or two that are constantly bringing discredit to their club. They supposedly belong to a club. They say that they're really good at football but there's a whole lot more to belonging to a football team than just playing good football. So they say one thing and what their code stands for but actually do another thing and pull everything down. That's what Paul says. He says you say one thing but you can't keep it and so as a result you dishonour God. It says... Because you don't practice what you preach, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That's a quote 
from Isaiah 52 and also Ezekiel 36.22, what it's referring to is that remnant, the Jews, Judah, was actually taken into exile, down into Babylon. Why? Because they disobeyed God and they were being punished. But what were the nations around them saying? They were saying, ha ha, your God's no good. He can't help you. Look at that. The Babylonians have come and overthrown you and now you're down there away from the land that you think's really important. They thumbed their noses at God as a result of their sin. The nations around thumbed their noses at God as a result of the sin of his people. God's name was dishonoured and consequently blasphemed by those around about them. They were hypocrites. That was the quote that I started with at the start, wasn't it? Jesus talking to the Pharisees and saying that you, on the outside, have everything clean, looks perfect, but on the inside there's absolutely nothing of any substance. In Matthew 6 he talks to them about you hypocrites. You give in this way but you don't actually care for those that I've given to you to look after. You pray in this way, but you don't act on what you know to be true to help others. You fast in this way, so others will think that you're really good and godly and spiritual, but in actual fact, you're not. So that's the point here, isn't it? The Jew was relying on the law because I've got a special book and I know it really well and I can tell others what they should do. They were the teachers of the law and yet in John 5.39 Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So encouraging to hear Peter's response when Jesus says, well everyone else is leaving me, are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, but Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, the Jews thought that they were right with God because they had the law and they taught the law. They were God's special nation. What's the danger? We're in the same boat. God has revealed himself to us, hasn't he? Through his word. We have the Bible, the the written word in our hands. I don't know about you, but I've got a good few copies on my shelves at home we have it and here's the challenge for us if we're followers of Jesus the world is watching every move that we make and Jesus is being judged by what we do is Jesus' name being blasphemed and dishonoured as people look at us and see how we act and react throughout the week when we're put under pressure when things go wrong 
Are there YouTube clips that could be filmed of us behind closed doors that demonstrate us talking in a different way if that was done? The passage that we read in James spoke very clearly about not just listening to the word and deceiving ourselves but doing what it says. See, that's the challenge that we are at most risk of, I think, is that we have God's word and we could inadvertently take pride in that fact and that we know it and that we can quote it and that we can readily pull out the right verse in a situation to say to someone who's going through difficulty. But what's most important is is that we need to allow it to change us. Those verses in James, we were told to look intently into the perfect law. Look intently into God's word. Did we do that this week? Did we take some time to read it? You see, because this is what we can do to actually help make sure that we're not hypocrites, that we don't fall into the same trap that the Jews did that Paul's speaking to here. Not only are we to look into the the perfect law, that is to read it, it says we're to continue to do this. We need to review it. We need to reflect on it. We need to meditate on it. I'm always encouraged with Psalm 1. What did that man who was blessed do? He meditated on God's word day and night. And what did the psalmist say about God's word in Psalm 19? That it's sweeter than honey. That it actually is something that I need and that as I reflect and read through it, it actually changes me and makes me like my creator. In Psalm 119, every verse, bar about four, actually talks about the value of God's word in the psalmist's life. All very practical things that bring about that outworking. And then it says about that man that not only does he look into the perfect law and he continues to do it, he doesn't forget it. Not forgetting what he's heard. He remembers it. There's a lot of things forgotten, isn't there, between leaving the church doors and getting into the car, in the church car park. The challenge, James says, is that we not just need to read it, we not just need to review it, we need to remember it, to memorise it. And then most importantly, we've got to do it. We've got to respond to God's word. What did Jesus say? He said, whoever hears my word and puts it into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. If you've got a pen, you might write this down or take your hand. One of the things some of us are doing um, 40 days in the word and this is just 
a way in terms of remembering the value of what the word of God is. If we think about our little finger, the first thing that James told us is we had to listen to the word. That is, we had to receive it. Isn't it wonderful to have radio stations that actually provide the word of God out across the airwaves so that people can receive the word. We can read it. So we use our ears and we use our eyes. So that's the second one. We review it, so we constantly review it and reflect on it, meditate on it, and then we remember it. But what's the thumb? The thumb's doing, it's responding. You can't get a grip on the Bible unless you have a thumb, unless we actually do it and put it into practice. If we've just got those four, what happens? It doesn't have any substance in terms of being able to hold on to it and get it into our lives. So again, Jesus said, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like the man who built his house on a rock. You know, the purpose of God's word is always practical. It's to build our relationship with God and with others. I've read 2 Timothy 3.16. I've memorised it. I know the verse well. I'm sure many of you do too. What do I tend to use that verse for? I tend to use that verse as saying, yes, God's word is inspired. All scripture is written by inspiration of God and is profitable, isn't it, for a number of things for teaching, rebuke, correcting and training in righteousness. Wonderful. Is that where the verse stops? What are the next words in that verse? Smack in the middle. It says, so that. As Terry was saying, the Bible's not just for learning and memorising and having with me and saying this is wonderful and this is fantastic and wasn't that exciting what's written in here? The whole purpose of the law of the Bible is so that the man of God, the woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, it's only recently that I've really got hold of that. That that's what that verse actually teaches that it's actually saying, Keith, yes indeed, God's word's inspired, but it's so that I'll get my life together so that I will do things in a way that demonstrates that God is real, that God is alive. What were those verses that I read right at the start? You hypocrites, you ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. They're the things that really matter, Jesus said. And then what did James say? If we had have read on in those last few verses after to the end of the chapter, it actually says this about what pure religion actually is. It actually says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted 
by the world. That's really practical, isn't it? That's how we make sure that we're not hypocrites. You see, because matched in with that is that true religion is not relying on a ritualistic observance of doing some particular things like circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. Back in Genesis 17, God said that that's a physical sign that you are my people. And as we read through the scripture, we even get to the point in Galatians where Gentiles were becoming believers but then the Jewish Christians were saying, now you've got to be circumcised. But as Paul says here, you can be circumcised and not obey the law, you're not circumcised. You can obey the law and not be circumcised but in reality you really are. So what's he actually saying? He's actually saying that circumcision means nothing. Physical circumcision. Galatians 2 and verse 6 says that God doesn't judge by external appearance. In Galatians 6 and 15, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. We know that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I've got a wedding ring on. I suppose a few few of you have. My dad's 85, or was 80, well he turned 85 this week. My dad's never worn a wedding ring. But last year we celebrated his and mum's 60th wedding anniversary. The fact that Dad's never worn a wedding ring hasn't meant a cracker about whether or not he's married. And God's been incredibly gracious to Mum and Dad and given them a very healthy relationship. There's plenty of people that actually wear a wedding ring but there's no relationship with their husband or their wife to the point that many people are separated. The wedding ring meant actual nothing. It was the relationship and the way they related to each other which was a demonstration that they'd made a lifelong commitment to care for each other. And so, too, with circumcision. So what's the point? The true child of God is the one who's in right relationship with God. It's the one whose heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God. In the coming, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God fulfilled his promises that he gave through the prophets when he instituted a new covenant. Jeremiah 31.31 I will put in you a new heart a heart of flesh and not of stone was the constant thing that the prophets actually talked about. And that covenant's based on the forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 and 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
we've got to be really careful, don't we? That we don't fall into the same trap of thinking that some outward physical sign makes us right with God. What are those sorts of things? Terry talked about a classic, communion. We can come here and take communion. Does that make us right with God? We can stay away and not take communion. Does that mean we're not right with God? It's a sign, isn't it? It's only got meaning if we're actually in right relationship with God, that we're relying on the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus for our salvation. What are some of the things that we might put in that same category of circumcision? Communion? Baptism? Confirmation? Going to church? Speaking in tongues? Are any of those things enough to make us a Christian? No, our hearts must be circumcised by the regenerating power of God's Holy Spirit. Let me paraphrase those verses at the end. You look at those verses at the end of chapter 2 of Romans. A person is not a Christian if he or she is only one outwardly nor is taking communion or baptism merely outward and physical. No, a man or a woman is a Christian if he or she is one inwardly and communion or baptism is communion or baptism of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. What's our experience this morning? Paul's experience was that he knew physical circumcision didn't mean anything. And on that Emmaus road, no, the Damascus road, when that light from heaven came and then when he went to Ananias' house, scales fell from his eyes. He knew that he was circumcised in the heart. Have you and I experienced a moment like that? Have we had a point where despite all the facade and everything that we might have around us that we're looking really good and doing well, have we had a point where we've actually had the Spirit of God through his power regenerate us as all of a sudden the aha, I can't do it by myself. This means nothing. What matters is that God's Spirit has circumcised my heart as I've put my faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you and me. We need to take God's word and not just to know it but to do it and put it into practice so that we will know that we are right with God and then And only then will we be able to practice what we preach. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that takes your word and applies it to our lives. Father, if any of us here have not taken that step of accepting what you have done on our behalf because we acknowledge and recognise that there's nothing that we can do ourselves to be right with God. 
Father, help us to take that step this morning. And Father, if there's things in our lives where we're being hypocritical, that we're putting up a brave face, but our lives don't actually match what we say we believe, Father, again, through the power of your Spirit, search those things out in our lives today and give us the grace to be able to acknowledge that they're wrong and to allow you to forgive us for them and to change us so that our lives do match what we say in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.